An astronomer must be cosmopolitan, because ignorant statesmen cannot be expected to value their services. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh yeah, baby baby Trump. Oh, don't start with him. Uh, Matt, who was that? Tycho Bray. That might be one of the best names ever. He's absolutely one of the coolest people ever anyway. So we we bigged up Galileo last week and uh, Mm -hmm. he stood on the shoulders of a giant. And this is that giant, isn't it? Yeah, Tycho Bray, born on the 14th of December. 1546. He's pretty old. Yeah, so he's older than a whole generation earlier than Galileo. Incredible stuff. He came up with the Tychonic system. Okay. So which he saw the moon as orbiting the Earth and the planets orbiting the sun. But unfortunately, he still had the sun orbiting the Earth, which was a bit annoying. So Matt, he was the last of the major naked eye astronomers working without telescopes for his observations. You would have thought that that'd be pretty difficult in that era. Yeah, I know it is impressive because, yeah, he he measured precisely stellar novae or new stars, which we now, of course, call supernovae. In particular, there was one huge one uh, that happened at the time, and, and most people consider it one of the most important events in astronomy. Supernova fifteen seventy two happened in the year which which what year do you reckon that happened in? You're going to tell me fifteen seventy two. I, I, I aren't am you? in the constellation of Cassiopeia. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah, and what he showed was that there was no parallax, so it couldn't be a sublunar phenomena, as in something it, it can't be nearer than the moon, which everyone thought. And uh, so he showed that it, it must be out in space somewhere, which, which damaged quite a few of the kind of assumptions at the time that somehow the heavens were immutable. Oh, he's a bit clever then. Oh, he was. he's considered one of the very first people who really, really stuck to observation and made sense of the world through observation. So as Edwin Arthur Burt wrote in his doctoral thesis, the metaphysical foundations of modern physical science, he said he was the first competent mind in modern astronomy to feel ardently the passion for exact empirical facts. Yes, how cool is that? Stick that in your pipe Mm. and smoke Mm. it, yeah? That supernova was such an important event that Johann Kepler, Johannes Kepler, who was... Tycho Brahe's student for a while and helper and assistant. He basically, Johannes Kepler sought out Tycho Brahe because of Tycho Brahe's absolutely genius uh, observations and meticulous data collection. So Johannes Kepler mm. knew that this was the man to hang out with to, to further his career. I think Kepler was very, very ambitious. And he he kept uh, publishing the book Concerning the Star, New and Never Before Seen in the Life or Memory of Anyone, which was Tycho... <laughs> I love it's an that. ace title, isn't it? The Tycho Bray's book about the supernova 1572, later to be called, of course. Well, most people refer to it as Tycho's supernova. 
and Chandra. Oh my gosh, you've got to see Chandra's pictures of Tycho's supernova remnant because it's. They, Can we put some up on the uh, Instagram page? We, we absolutely. It's it's like a big looks like a sort of ball of fluff. It's just genius. So good. It's ace. Yeah, I love that. I love that. It's one of my. Fa- it, it is. I, I, everyone will be aware of the picture, maybe not realise what it is, but yeah, what a fantastic. Well, Matt, would you would you like some uh, alternative culture? Mm-hmm. Because it's possible that SN1572 is the, and I quote, star that's westward from the pole in Shakespeare's Hamlet. Ooh, that's cool, isn't it? That really is cool. That is cool. So my favourite fact about Tycho, and one that is is often referred to in, in science things, is that he <laughs> had a, a, a duel with his fellow Danish nobleman, his cousin Mandrup Parsberg, and <laughs> they had a quarrel about who was the best mathematician. <laughs> who won? <laughs> well, I don't know, but Tycho Bray had his nose cut off, <laughs> literally, Ooh. not just not metaphysically, but actually had his nose cut off. Oh my and, God. And had to wear a prosthetic nose, which most people thought was made of silver or gold, but it turned out that researchers who dug up his body in uh, 2012 uh, found that uh, it was probably made of brass and glued on. Hang on a minute. <laughs> let me just let's just rewind for a second. Let me just get this straight. He was having an argument with his cousin about who was the best mathematician. That's the kind of arguments we have. And his <laughs> and his cousin cut his nose off <laughs> with a sword. Jeez. And this this was a, a an engagement party, so you can imagine that that his <laughs> oh god. I mean, if anything's going to kill the ambiance, it's that, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, four days before his birthday as well. So around about now, as oh. we record this. <laughs> so, so yeah, how funny is that? I mean, it would have been aggressive to just punch him in the face, but cut his <laughs> nose off with a sword. I just can't get over that. That is that is. That's really over oh, that, the top. That's how, Bloody hell, Mandara. Yeah, but that's how people dealt with their arguments back then. They they thought it was totally cool to have duels. That's 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 how it was done. Jamie, that's how it was just done, man. <laughs> I think I'd rather be shot in the in the in the head than someone cut my nose off with a sword. Well, <laughs> yeah, you do have a very lovely nose, Jamie. It'd be a pity for me to some great nose. I couldn't go on without this. Well, time. just don't argue with me about who's the best podcaster. That's how to avoid having your nose okay. cut off, Jamie. Uh, the listeners know anyway. Uh, ja- <laughs> so let's carry on. <laughs> so, Jamie. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, uh, do you know any objects out in space or otherwise named after our hero of the week? Well, when you said it, it made me think of a lunar crater. Am I right? You, you were absolutely right. Everyone's favourite lunar crater that you can really clearly see with the naked eye is Tycho of course named it is, after it's a big one Tycho yeah and he's also got one on Mars as well Tycho but a on Mars yeah oh and and uh, a minor planet in the asteroid belt 1677 Tycho Bray when am i going to get a minor planet named after me well very soon very soon Jamie well you just have well, to make, I hope make, so Maybe you'll need to discover one. But hey, Jamie. Matt, well, is there, I was going to say, is there anywhere 
mm-hmm. that our listeners can go to if they want to learn a bit more? Well, I would imagine a place in Copenhagen. How do you say Copenhagen? I've always said Copenhagen. I say it that. Yeah, yeah Copenhagen. Yeah. yeah, the Tycho Bray Planetarium. <gasps> can we go? Well, we should definitely go. Ne- next time we're in uh, Denmark. To Copenhagen is in Denmark, isn't it? <laughs> I bloody love Denmark. I had one of the best meals of my life there. Right. Uh, not in the restaurant that everyone thinks, um, but a different one. Mm. Um, there you go. I hope, I hope that's uh, interesting <laughs> for everyone. <laughs> it's a good oh, fact. It's but you will fact. be pleased to know that I had a chocolate mousse um, with bits of bacon in it. And you're probably thinking, oh, weird. It was incredible. Chocolate mousse with bacon in it. This story has become better. It's the kind of thing where where your nose might drop off eating it. I'll tell you what, it would be worth it then. Yeah. So, Matt, I know that you've been a bit, you you got angry this week. Yeah. I want to know why. Well, one of the reasons why I chose that particular Tycho Bray quote, because ignorant statesmen cannot be expected to value their services. It's, Mm. It's precisely what's going on. So the fourth national climate assessment, which, by the way, is like this culmination of all the major science bodies in America, like especially NASA, using all that right. data, you know, and the, even the Department of Defense and all these places have to uh, deliver this report every five years, I think. Okay. And basically, it reads like an absolute horror story. It's, 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 <laughs> we are basically doomed unless we start doing something very, very radical and very, very soon, i.e., reduce CO2 by 45% before mm. 2030. So that is pretty massive. That's a lot. Yeah. And, but it's, but it's, uh, it's really, really bad. So, what does Trump do? Let me let me guess. Does he think it's a hoax by China? <laughs> he at he actually tweeted, "I don't believe it." That's it. Just glibly, what strokes it away with a I don't, you don't you don't get the chance to not just just go. I don't believe it. Of course, you can disagree with things. That's that's what but- facts are for. <laughs> you absolute. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so unfortunately uh the lives of everyone on the planet are being affected by leaders like trump and other ignorant statesmen ignoring the services of their astronomers and scientists and it makes me mad <laughs> oh god it's so depressing <laughs> yeah it's it's really bad We'd, we re- we could really do without that kind of statesman it's not an argument born out of any kind of scientific rigor or, exactly. or, or knowledge it's so annoying Arrgh. oh don't get me started matt if you mm. if you have an argument in good faith that disagrees with that that's fine there are some scientists who still very very few but are still in good faith have some doubts about this type of cl- climate change if that was if that's okay as long as the argument's in good faith. But if you find that the argument is being financed by people, it, it's horrendous, isn't it? Political rant of the, the week. week. Uh, Jamie, space word of the week. You're not going to slam dunk gravitational redshift in my face, are you? <laughs> I absolutely am going to do gravitational redshift. 
I nearly said, I, I nearly said ass. Talking of ass, podcast 111, that's what we're in. And of course, 111, apart from being a perfect totient number, Jamie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is also a score in cricket called the Nelson. Is it? Yeah. So if you and why is that? Uh, because uh, he allegedly lost one eye, one arm, and one leg. But that's not true. It's not even true. Oh, he, did, he didn't lose a leg. So most people think it might mean because one eye, one arm, one asshole. What he lost an asshole? <laughs> no, he is an asshole. I think. I think. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Uh, with a lot of swearing in this episode. Oh, there's going to be a lot of bleeps. I'm loving it. Yeah. If you were in New Zealand, you'd call the emergency services on 111. <laughs> there's been a crime in podcasting. Dial 111. Yeah. Gravitational redshift. What's the story? So I loved this story. And of course, it falls back with Galileo. So the Galileo satellites have been used hmm. to get the most accurate measurement ever of Einstein's theory of general relativity, uh, nailing down this gravitational redshift. Oh. Yes, there's a paper called Gravitational Redshift Test Using Eccentric Galileo Satellites. And it doesn't refer to Galileo being eccentric, although I'm pretty certain he was. It uh, re- refers to the type of orbit they're in. <laughs> Not quite circular, oh, in other okay. words. And that's by P. Delver et al. So, yes... Well, that's what I was just about to say. Yes, there's two European teams that were working in parallel to get a five-fold improvement on on an experiment done a long time ago. Let me just see if I can find that. (laughs) Who cares? Oh, no, 1976, 1976. The Gravity Probe A Hydrogen Maser Rocket Experiment. If you want to look that up, if you wanted to work out how they did it. But yes, Galileo satellites five and six. Five and six. Thanks to a malfunctioning Soyuz, uh, a phrase that we're becoming more and more accustomed to. Um, Sadly. Basically, five and six were sent into the wrong orbit, but and they thought, damn, we've lost them. But ESA flight controllers were able to um, lower the point of the satellites but uh, and make them more circular. But now the the orbits are much more elliptical than they should be, okay. Uh, and and so they climb eight thousand five hundred kilometers twice a day. So as they go round, it goes low and high and low and high, eight by eight thousand five hundred kilometers. So they they go through a gravitational field twice a day. Oh, changing gravitational field, of course, as they come closer to Earth and further away from Earth. Now. I had known about the effect that the satellite's speed has on its time, and obviously because they're traveling much faster than we are, you have to mm. take you have to take time dilation into account and if you didn't, your uh, sat nav would drift by ten kilometers a day if they didn't oh. take general relativity into account so that's pretty phenomenal anyway but also, this smaller effect is the gravity, the effect of gravity has on your time. And as Einstein predicted, in the effect of a gravitational field, your time either slows up or speeds up relative to someone else's in a different gravitational mm. field. They've been able to use these uh, two wayward eccentric satellites to test that very effect to the best ever degree. 
So isn't it amazing, Matt, the things that are going on that a lot of people just don't know about that could have massive... Imagine how much of an effect that would have on sat-navs if that happened all the time. Yeah, well... It'd be a nightmare. <laughs> so, they, they, yeah, each Galileo satellite carries two rubidium and two hydrogen maser clocks, so essentially four insane timekeeping devices. Get this. <laughs> the hydrogen maser clocks... They are stable mm. to one second every three million years. <laughs> what? <laughs> Come on! <laughs> yeah, how cool is that? So, and because these and because these maser clocks, the hydrogen maser clocks, are on board, they've been able to use them. But not just that. You'd think that this. Oh, they're just measuring the time. It's taken three years' work to eliminate things like clock error. Orbital drift, the fact that Earth's not this sphere, it's got bumps and lumps, and the influence of Earth's magnetic field, temperature variations, and even the persistent push of sunlight, solar radiation pressure, all of those had to be taken into account and taken away from all these mathematical equations and stuff to to carefully get this brilliant measurement of Einstein's special relativity. That has blown my mind. I love that. General relativity, I should say. Sorry. Yeah, get it right. How cool is that? I think we need to put some more images up. Yeah. Brilliant stuff. So uh, so that stability is down to four picoseconds over 13 hours, four millionth of one millionth of a second. (laughs) 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 That's that's so amazing. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's about the same time as it takes for our listeners to correct us when we make an error. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Which I love, by the way, guys. Carry yeah, on. Carry please. on. Carry Especially on. when it's Matt. Yes. It's too true. Jamie, what got launched this week? Well, it was Chang'e 4. Or, yeah, or Shang'e Sihao, as the Chinese, I think, nowhere near you're getting like that you're definitely getting it that down i think that's i think that's much better so matt this is the robotic lander and rover um and it's landing on the 3rd of january 2019 so good luck not long not long at all this and it's a really 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 exciting mission this one um, and this is first first ever soft landing on the far side of the moon am i right First ever landing on the far side of the moon. It's going to be really exciting. We did actually have a chat with David Baker on Podcast 73 about it. Now, Matt, if they're landing on the far side of the moon, Mm -hmm. can I ask a question that I think a lot of people will be wondering? Yeah, you do it. Now, some people think that the far side of the moon is always dark. But why is that wrong? I think it comes from Pink Floyd's album Dark Side of the Moon. There is no dark side. Yeah. Of, there is no dark side of the moon. Just because it's the far side of the moon that we never see, we just can't see it because it's tidally locked with Earth. Yeah, uh, but we. But it, of course, it gets sunlight as as we orbit around the sun and it orbits around Earth. It gets just as much sunlight as the other side, if, except except it's less likely to be in shadow from the Earth. So, what do they expect to get from this mission, Matt? A, I think one of the most important things is the fact because it's the far side, it, it's much more suitable for um, astronomy and observations because you've got all this rock in the way of all our stupid telephone and and television transmissions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's it's, right. it's quite a lot quieter in terms of uh, interference from Earth. So it allows you to study cosmic rays, low frequency radio astronomy. And stuff like that. But also they want to measure the chemical composition of the rocks and soil 
and the, and the temperatures on the other side. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think that the information that we're going to get back from this mm-hmm. could mean that it could go on to fuel where we land, where we build uh, potential habitats. Mm. What do you think, Matt? Well, we're excited about the James Webb telescope, but we should. But we'd imagine how amazing a telescope and how big you could build it if you built it on the far side of the moon. It would just be absolutely incredible. Uh, so uh, that's what I'd be really excited about. But they're doing some other weird stuff. They're landing a container with potatoes and plant seeds as part of a biological experiment called the Lunar Mini Biosphere. Someone call Matt Damon quick. It's 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 in two parts, Changi Four. It's um it's uh, a lander that's got two cameras, a German built radiation experiment, a spectrometer, so that's gonna be performing the low frequency radio astronomy observations. And there's a rover. And do you know what's on the rover? Uh oh, I know that there's a panoramic camera, which is gonna be epic. So we're gonna get some pickies, yep. That all you know, just to wind the flat earthers up. <laughs> who are going to say that the images are fake. Yep. How long can they keep saying that, eh? Trump-style reasoning, as I call it. Trump trolls. Yeah. <laughs> what else have they got, Matt? Uh, a radar to probe the lunar surface. And Nice. Yeah, a spectrometer to have a look at the minerals. Okay. An imaging spectrometer to look at minerals. An experiment to examine the interaction of the solar wind with the lunar surface. That is beautiful. Matt, can we go back to the potato seeds? I have a question. Yes, go. So are you saying that they're going to try and see what happens when they plant potato seeds in the quote-unquote soil on the moon? No, I don't think they're going to put it into the into the regolith. I just don't know. I think we should just look it up. I'd like to know more about that. Yeah, the lunar mini biosphere. Yes, I'd like to know more about it. It's, it's quite hard with Chinese space stuff. Is It's always a little bit harder to get information about it. Maybe the translation is a bit funny. Maybe they don't mean potatoes at all. <laughs> Maybe they just mean that the rover's taking up a bag of crisps. Well, let's not forget, of course, as well, there's the Guai or Magpie Bridge, which was, a sat- we go. which was a little satellite, which we did talk about on Podcast 84, that went to Lagrange Point L2 in a halo orbit. Oh, yeah, keep and, talking. And that is, <laughs> and that, of course, because it's on the far side of the moon, we need some way of talking to this Changi 4. And do you know where it's going to land? Jamie? Um, is it going to land on the Von Karman crater? Yes. And why do you think that that's symbolic? Wasn't it Theodore Von Karman, um, who was the PhD advisor of Juan Xuxin, the founder of the Chinese space program? Yes. <laughs> Yes, it was. Oh, God. <laughs> so, yes. Right. Yeah. Let, I mean, talk about slam dunk. <laughs> You've done it. I mean, that one is. So, anyway, Jamie, I've got a fantastic, um, a fantastic interview now from the... Oh. Uh, who's an expert about the rivals of the Chinese, the, in, oh. the Indian space program. Uh, oh, this is very exciting. Yeah, so this is part one of the Gurbir Singh interview about Indian Space Programme. Uh, you loved this, didn't you? I can't wait to hear this. The book is absolutely brilliant. I have started reading it, and it's just a brilliant book. So go out and get Gurbir's book. What's the title of the book? The Indian Space Programme, India's Incredible Journey from the Third World Towards the First. Beautiful. 
and he's also written a book by uh, uh, called Yuri Gagarin in London and Manchester, A Smile That Changed the World. Hashtag stocking filler. The, uh, the Indian Space Programme book will definitely fill your stocking. It's a, it's a monster of a book. Is it a Bible? I like it. Yeah, so it's a great, 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 great read. And, and he's a really nice person to talk to. <laughs> so, Matt, this is going to be a two-parter. Yeah. Let's, let's hear uh, it. Batsono. Hello, Gerbeer. How are you? I'm very well indeed, Matt. Excellent. And how are you? Very well indeed. Thank you very much. And what part of the world are you uh, Skyping in from? Uh, from a very hot and sunny Manchester area. <laughs> well, let me, t- let me tell you this. I lived in Manchester for four years, and my memory of it is that it rained every day. Yeah, you're quite right. That's how I remember it as well. Hot and sunny all the time. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> so uh, you've recently uh, written a book about the Indian space program. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so it's um, uh, having been, uh, having had an interest in astronomy in space uh, since childhood, like most people. Um, I've uh, been uh, uh, interested in the growth of uh, the space programs uh, around the world. Um, I remember very well the days when it was just America and uh, the USSR doing the space race during the 60s and 70s. Um, but um, since then, of course, now there's about 70-odd countries which have something in the way of a space program. And I was born in India, so I automatically have an interest in understanding how India India's space program has been evolving. And when I looked around a few years ago, I couldn't find a book uh, that described it all. Um, there were s- smaller pieces or individual uh, chapters in books that might speak about some aspects of the Indian space program, but there wasn't anything um, detailed uh, about uh, the bigger picture. So um, in 2012, I set out to... Um, do some research. I visited India three separate occasions, uh, looking at some of the um, individual sites. India uh, has had a space program since, I suppose, when it launched its very first rocket into space, which came from the US. Um, it was an Apache Nike rocket that went into a suborbital flight on the 21st of November 1963. And at that time, uh, India was evolving uh, its economy. It was not long after it had attained its independence. It was looking for um, developing uh, a nation on the forefront of newer technologies, which is the sort of thing that we, I remember vaguely from here, you might recall um, Harold Wilson, the old Labour Prime Minister. Uh, just about, yeah, just about, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he spoke about the white heat of technology, which was the way that Britain would uh, evolve and develop its economy in the 1960s and 70s, and uh, India was doing likewise. So it started really very early on. It's a really, really fascinating programme, and, and often it's really, really underlooked, especially considering India's population is going to be overtaking China soon, and the economy is obviously a huge, 
huge deal in terms of global economies. So it's really interesting, isn't it, that, that they embraced technology and that was the way that they saw the future of the country. So how deeply does the book uh, go into that sort of detail in terms of the, the, the politics behind it early on? Well, that, that's actually uh, one of the reasons why it's quite a quite a large book now. It's about six hundred pages, is because the uh, the historical aspect um, on why India uh, had a, a space program intrigued me quite a lot, and it was down to a couple of guys. Uh, there's many people, of course, involved in India's space program, um, but um, uh, if I'll just mention a couple of names, the mm-hmm. Homi Baba was a, a nuclear physicist. He studied here in the UK at Cambridge uh, just before the war, and he was around in the late 1920s, 1930s, when there was a great deal of um, activity, particularly in how the atom and uh, molecules were constructed. And his work was to do with um, antimatter, which was fairly new. And Mm-hmm. He, his, his work uh, led him to uh, meet up with uh, many of the well-known scientists of that era, Schrodinger, uh, Paul Dirac, uh, Albert Einstein. And he, in fact, had many meetings here with uh, some of these people in Manchester. And he, in fact, got an offer of, uh, offer of a job just before uh, he left for India in 1939 from Liverpool, but the Liverpool John Morse University uh, Liverpool University, rather. And uh, in the end, he didn't take that, but he off- was offered by another job by a guy called Patrick Blank- Blackett, who had set up a, a nuclear physics department in, in Manchester. And whilst he was away in India in 1939, war broke out and he never quite made it. And because of he, he had a lot of connections in the West, and he was obviously a very bright fella. Um, the Indian and he had very large, uh, strong connections. I'm sure you're familiar with the Tata name in connection. Yeah, with India. yeah, yeah. The the, ste- the steel company, steel is that right? And now cars, everything. Yep. <laughs> yeah, consultancy. They're, they've always had a, a, a really huge port- portfolio. Um, he was married to somebody from the Tata family, and then so he had. Um, Influence, power, and wealth, and he was convinced uh, by the then first prime minister of the newly independent India, uh, Nehru, to set up uh, institutions of research in India, and he got funding, and he did so. And uh, although a lot of people thought, you know, he was a bit crazy, given that um, uh, his institution, which was set up and is one of the places I visited. Um, he was looking at uh, how mesons and positrons behaved at um, nuclear relativistic uh, fields. And uh, a lot of people thought, well, why do you want to do that? In India, you know, there's a lot of people who don't have basic education, roofs over their head, no jobs. Um, but he decided very early on that by engaging with science and technology and doing the research and development, it was a way of bringing India into the 20th century much more quickly than it would have done otherwise. And he also at that time decided, just after Sputnik, that um, uh, India should have a space program. And he put another guy, and this is the second name I'll mention, Vikram Sarabhai, in charge of the that what then was called 
and the Indian uh, Committee for Space Research. Now, you're probably too young to remember Committee for Space Research. research or, Definitely. Or SPAR. <laughs> yeah. um, and this was... Oh, actually, I do remember. Actually, when they said that, yeah, I do remember that. But, yeah, probably I couldn't tell you anything more than the name. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's it's, it's set up in the uh, late 1950s and it's still around. But that's how mm. India got uh, into the space program. And in the end, um, uh, they got a lot of collaborative support. And this has been another feature throughout India's uh, development of its space program. They were always engaged with uh, Russia uh, or USSR in those days, uh, France and Kness, as it is now, and um, uh, America. The first rocket I mentioned that was launched from Indian soil came mm. from America. Um, and it, it was the driver in every case was uh, so that India could have its um, uh, economy develop on new technologies. And space technology was seen as a way to not only do, um, help out the farmers and fishermen, which at that time and in, indeed today, India still relies on a very largely agricultural uh, economy. Uh, by providing uh, information from in-orbit resources, uh, satellites, they could provide uh, details. In fact, one of the earliest experiments that was done from helicopter using the old Hasselblad cameras uh, indicated that India could benefit uh, by having space-borne assets and looking down at uh, India's uh, uh, huge landmass and provide the information for farmers on how they could uh, detect uh, diseases on plants, uh, determine where to uh, um, farm, and indeed where to find water. And later, other additional services came along, like meteorology, which again is very important for uh, a region which suffers from the monsoons um, historically uh, very badly. And uh, the... Um, all the information that has come from space, uh, either from Earth-based um, Earth observation satellites or indeed from remote sensing or navigational and meteorological satellites, has helped not only to develop that economy that you referred to about India, but also uh, save many people's lives because of the evacuation uh, that can take place through early warning notices. It's always an argument, isn't it? I mean, and, and this one's always levied at the Indian space program is why Britain still sends foreign aid to India, even though you have a more developed space program than Britain. And it's and, and it always sounds like off the bat that that's a, that's a, a, a weird conundrum. But as soon as you start to understand the 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 benefits of having a space program and like you said it saves saves lives and it's part of how you develop a a nation do you hear that argument a lot and do you have to sort of wade in and educate people i suppose into into seeing it in a different way uh, absolutely and in fact the the last couple of chapters uh, in the book uh, i deal with that and um, the I, I was quite amazed thinking <laughs> uh, that india was still getting aid from from the UK. Um, but um, going back a couple of years, uh, the UK, uh, you know, we had our own recession here in the UK and yeah. difficulties. Uh, quite apart from that, um, India 
the UK has been winding down its contribution of about 300 million pounds a year it used to donate. And that's pretty much zero by now uh, or will be soon uh, mm. by the end of this year. Um, but apart from that, not, not many people know that although India has traditionally uh, received uh, economic financial aid for many years, uh, now India is a net donor uh, it, uh, t to its regional uh, countries. So, for example, it provides uh, Africa uh, about a 10 billion uh, over a very long period of time towards development projects in Africa. And the yeah. African countries send students to India for uh, training. There's also a contribution of about uh, a billion US dollars to Afghanistan to fight against uh, terrorism and rebuilding that, that goes, that's necessary there. And there's also been a uh, uh, huge um, contribution towards the um, countries such as Bhutan, Bangladesh, Nepal, Sri Lanka. And, you know, during the uh, last 25 years of the previous century, uh, India's poverty levels uh, came down from 50% to 25%. i am sure it wasn't just down to the space program, but you can have an improving uh, situation with the national poverty statistics and have a space program, as indeed the U.S., uh, had, you know, during the 1960s and 70s, during Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo, um, U.S. had uh, poverty levels of between 12 and 15 percent. So you can have both the um, a space program and a reduction in poverty. And indeed, having a space uh, space program doesn't mean you can eradicate poverty anyway. I I'm a f I'm fully subscribed to the you've got to go out there and do other things rather than just directly tackle problems. You've got to you've got to be out there doing things like space and and clearly when America was massively involved with space it it, it helped their economy yeah. and helped the helped the country and it's it's helping transform India as well. India's first satellite. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Back in 1971. Uh, Russia came up to India and said, look, we can uh, uh, launch a satellite for you if you want. And this is uh, on the back of uh, about a decade earlier. And America came along and said, look, we can give you a rocket if you want to get your space program started. So there's always this tussle between the two superpowers then to get India to subscribe to their political system and, and get the engagement. Um, so in... Um, 1971, Russia came and said, offered to launch India's first satellite. And uh, Vikram Sarabhai, uh, who was then the, um, uh, the chairman, decided that they would do that. And they put a guy called Professor U.R. Rao in charge. And now, sadly, this was in 1971, um, before the year's end, Vikram Sarabhai died. And U.R. Rao had this project that he'd said yes to, and Vikram Sarabhai was highly respected throughout India, uh, not least by his colleagues. And uh, Rao insisted on uh, carrying through this particular project. And also because it was essentially free, it was a good way to jumpstart India's satellite program. So he decided that they would build a, a satellite called Aryabhata. It was a uh, experimental satellite 
it uh, was spin stabilized and it had uh, solar panels on the side, uh, solar cells on the side, not solar panels. Uh, it went into uh, eventually low Earth orbit. But this was the very early days. And one of the things um, that they didn't have, in fact, most of the people working on this satellite had never seen the satellite. But Professor Rao had worked on in the US, in um, in Houston and in, in MIT. He worked on the Pioneer spacecraft and the explorers. Uh, he was a, also a high-energy physicist uh, by training, uh, so he had had hands-on experience in building satellites. But when it came to building one in India, they started from the very lowest possible starting point. It was eventually launched in 1975 by the USSR on behalf of Russia, uh, behalf of India, and India by that time uh, had a very basic. Um, uh, receiving a ground station. So um, apart from the support they got from some uh, individual solar cells and batteries, um, they produced everything in-house in India and tested it. And uh, it was launched by Russia. And then all the telemetry and uh, communications was also conducted uh, in uh, in India. And interestingly, uh, so this is in the uh, early 1970s. And you'll remember that um, the UK in 1971, uh, closed down its uh, space mm. launch program. <laughs> and the site that Britain used was in Australia, a place called Woomera. And just by coincidence of timing, um, the, they had two ground stations with all the telemetry equipment, which as a result of closing down this operation, they were, uh, Britain was selling these off uh, auction mm. very cheaply. India acquired one of these telemetry stations which came to Siri Harikota and it was used to receive signals from Aryabhata um, in 1975. Yeah, that, that really is a cool piece of information. So one picture that I always love, and, and I, I hopefully you can put a bit of background to this and whether it's true or, the, or whether it really is a, a bit of a kind of uh, a, a fable, is the satellite on the back of a kind of horse and cart type situation? Can you tell us a little bit about that photo and whether uh, uh, what the reality behind it was? If you yeah, know the photo uh, I'm referring to, <laughs> I do indeed. Uh, in fact, I'll see if I can locate and tweet it. Uh, it's uh, uh, it's an iconic photo that uh, was taken of uh, the satellite. You can see the satellite; it's not covered up or anything. On, as you say, a, a bullock cart, and the idea behind that was not, as many people think, to transport it from one place to another. And, and it's quite natural to think that that was the case because in the, in the past, there had been uh, cases where you can see nose cones of rockets being transported on bicycles. And that was about a decade earlier than that. But the purpose of moving this satellite uh, on a, <laughs> uh, a cart was... Because at that time, um, the testing facilities did, just did not exist. And one of the testings, you probably know, um, that a satellite before it's launched has to be tested for, in addition to um, the um, pressure and temperature chambers that uh, um, satellites can be put through to, to make sure they survive the elements that are uh, present in space. 
one of the other testing is that to make sure that uh, it can receive and transmit the electronic emissions uh, from the receivers and transmitters correctly. And it didn't have one of what they you might recognize as an, an echoic chamber. This is one of those rooms where you have uh, a sound engineer. I'm sure you've been in many of them. I <laughs> well, haven't. Uh, well, you should, you should go. You, you're not too far from one of the biggest, which is the one at Salford University, bizarrely. Oh, really? And, and I understand and, and do feel free to add to this that um, although in acoustics we talk about sound waves, but here the principle is to do with electromagnetic radiation. And what they wanted, and this is where the bullet card came in, is that there was no electronic emissions that you would have had if you had a car with a, a motor and ignition system and indeed anywhere close to a, a larger city. So a bullet cart was used to move the satellite as it was transmitting and sending to test its transmitter and receiver. That's very much like the pencil versus pen solution, isn't it, with the uh, writing on the moon, which I'm told is a myth. <laughs> India's got a, a Mars program. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. You might vaguely remember in 2011, um, a Russian probe um, mm-hmm. was yeah. to go to Mars and uh, China had a, a little lander on it for Phobos. Phobos Grunt was the name of the mission. Uh, unfortunately, it had a launch problem and uh, never left Earth orbit. So uh, in um, 2012, and this is now quite readily um, uh, openly uh, stated at the time it wasn't, but India took that decision uh, to go to Mars because the Rus- the Chinese probe had failed, and they knew that there was going to be this launch window in 2013. So they announced the program in 2012 after the failure of the Chinese probe in the previous year, and then um, built this um, uh, really s- small technology demonstrator spacecraft to go to uh, Mars at the next launch window and it arrived there in 2014. It's got a very tiny um, payload, uh, five instruments, 15 kilograms in total. Wow. So it's very small. (laughs) Uh, And uh, all of them, it's surprising, but um, uh, they they launched it in time, it got there, it's in orbit, and it's been orbit and, <clears throat> and operating successfully ever since. Uh, although there's one problem with the methane sensor but uh, on board, everything else has been operating uh, really very well, very successfully. And it's, um, it's been, I think it, everybody's surprised, but it's been one of the highlights for India in the last few years that uh, uh, India's got an active probe around Martian orbit right now i'm not going to attempt to pronounce it so how, how, how do you pronounce the name of the probe? <laughs> okay it's called mangalaya yeah. uh, or usually most people refer to it as the mars orbiter mission or mom in fact uh, there's going to be a film out in india later on early next year i think uh called space moms oh <laughs> no <laughs> It's, it's, yeah. uh, it's a story about all the women who worked on the Indian space program, and particularly uh, in um, the, the two key centers um, of the uh, Indian space program. They're all over the place, all over India, but two of them. Uh, one of them is the Sri Harikota, which is uh, in south, um, just below, just a, 
north of uh, Chennai, on, but it's still in southern India. But uh, most of the spacecraft and the sensors and instruments are built in uh, way down south in Kerala, and that's called the Vikram Sarabhai Space Center now. And it's surprising, but um, in Kerala, uh, unlike the rest of India, there's an extremely high uh, level of education for females, and uh, consequently, there's a lot of women work in Sri Harikota and in the Vikram Sarabhai Space Center, and uh, um, it's uh, called Space Moms. Wow. Is it is it done in a Bollywood style, or is it a bit more Western than that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure they won't be able to avoid having some singing and dancing in there, one uh, they'll squeeze it oh, in. Oh, that'd be fantastic. But, uh, I, I don't know. It's going to be uh, like a documentary style. Um, but um, whilst I'm at it, I'll just mention another film. <laughs> the the um, uh, paperwork has been done, apparently. Um, the Again, it should be uh, probably done by next year or the year after. Um, it's a film about the India's first astronaut, Rakesh Sharma. And he... Uh, uh, it's being played by India's um, best-known rock um, film stars, Shahrukh Khan. And that should also generate a lot of interest and enthusiasm in India about India's space program. Wow, it's amazing, isn't it? There's only one letter difference between India's first astronaut and Britain's. <laughs> Am I right in saying there's only one Indian astronaut so far? Uh, yes. So this was the... Um, a seven or eight day trip that Rakesh Sharma spent in uh, Salyut 7 in 1984, uh, in April 1984. Um, however, he, as with all missions, space missions, uh, had a, another uh, backup crew. So there was another Indian astronaut, uh, Ravish Molotra, who also did the training with him hmm. in Star City starting from 1980 uh, onwards. They were both out there with their families, uh, but um, it was Rakesh Sharma who did the flight. But um, Ravish Malhotra had the training, but it never flew. And you may recall, um, during the early days of the space shuttle, uh, the space shuttle used to take on board uh, payload specialists. Mm. And the idea was that um, it was then used uh, as part of uh, a commercial arrangement that um, U.S. would launch foreign satellites and take uh, a, an astronaut from that country on board as a payload specialist. There were two guys who uh, want to be trained for um, a mission to take India's uh, it's the second satellite that uh, uh, India had purchased. So apart from uh, these, the, in the early 1980s, India decided that communication satellites meteorology and uh, earth, uh, earth observation was a, 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 an investment worth making. So they committed themselves to a series of satellites called INSAT, mm. INSAT 1A to um, 1D. And these four satellites were made by um, uh, the American company Ford, just like the cars. Mm. And uh, those were the only satellites that India has purchased. Um, I think technically they did actually purchase another one in 2008 from Israel because they needed something for photo reconnaissance fairly quickly. But those four satellites, they were purchased from 
Ford Aerospace. And the second one of these, Insat 1B, was going to be launched by the space shuttle. So two Indian astronauts, and this time from Israel, the Indian Space Research Organization. These were scientists and engineers when they they were called N. C. Bat and P. Radhakrishnan. Uh, both of them are still around. I spoke to them for my research. Uh, both retired, of course. Um, but um, just before uh, they'd, they'd been selected, gone through all the training process, and uh, they had had some initial training in the U.S. as well. But um, Challenger mm. disaster of 1986 brought the commercial part of uh, this space shuttle to an end and uh, uh, with it ended their hopes for um, flights uh, aboard the uh, uh, into space so they had training but never flew and I'll just mention two two more um, both were females and had a connection with India mm. uh, Kalpana Chawla made two flights uh, to the uh, to space through uh, the space shuttle uh, sadly she died during the 2003 uh, Columbia return re-entry um, disaster that took place uh, and she was born in India but at the time she flew she had uh, taken on American mm. citizenship and then finally Sunita Williams who's a NASA astronaut still active mm -hmm. she, um, her dad comes from India her mother uh, is Serbian. They live in the U.S. Um, she has no direct connection with India other than her father. Yeah. But those are the only Indian uh, astronauts so far. Well, it's, it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's a, it, yeah, well, it's, it's quite sad that four, four astronauts trained and only one managed the, one managed the trip. I should imagine that's a, that's yeah. a pretty, pretty common story, I should imagine. So <laughs> it's, it's, mm. it's, it's pretty tough. So you've... Um, the, the Indian space program are looking towards uh, their own human space capability, aren't they, at the moment? Yeah, and, and this is uh, one of the more recent announcements. In August this year, the Indian Prime Minister announced that uh, uh, before the 75th anniversary of Indian independence in 2022, he'd like to see an Indian astronaut launched from India on an Indian spacecraft. Uh, apparently, some of the uh, indications are that it was a bit of a shock and surprise to Israel. <laughs> uh, is, uh, uh, they have been surprising because they have been working on um, some of the subsystems. For for example, they've uh, done a couple of flights of uh, what they call mock-up crew capsules. Um, one in 2007, they actually had a. Now this was uh, just a. A capsule recovery experiment, as they called it. It was not designed for crew, but uh, it's some, the first time that India launched something, stayed in space for a, a couple of weeks, and then it landed back uh, on Earth or a splashdown and is recovered, and it's now in the museum in, uh, in the Vikram Sarabhai Space Center in Kerala. Um, so they did some, uh, verified that they could. Uh, uh, remotely control something, bring it back to Earth, um, make sure they had uh, the uh, re-entry um, systems and guidance and navigation in place. That was in 2007. They also tested uh, on a suborbital flight 
uh, I think it was 2014, uh, a, a much slightly larger and a mock-up crew capsule. Uh, it had no uh, crew on board, and it was a suborbital flight on one of the first test flights of their heavy launch vehicle, and that went uh, really well. And uh, now they've oh, – sorry, one other thing that they did in connection with human spaceflight was um, earlier this year was a pad abort test whereby they just uh, made sure that if there was a fire uh, at the pad of pad at launch or immediately soon after, the astronauts could be detached from the launch vehicle and land separately um, in a uh, two or three kilometers away. Um, an interesting aside, now I mentioned um, Rakesh Sharma, his flight is in 1984. Uh-huh. I discovered afterwards, after writing the book, and I did contact him, um, he was at the launch of the Soyuz flight in September. Uh, he was in USSR at the time anyway, reading for his flight. And in that September, when there was a, exactly that, there was a fire at the launch, during a launch attempt, and the paddleboard test, uh, paddleboard rockets fired and saved the three crew on board, one of which was sat next to Rakesh Sharma in April 1984, just six months, seven months later. Oh, yeah. So, it's really quite interesting. He, he never didn't speak about it, but you know, to be, <laughs> be there watching this six months before you're going to be sitting yeah. in a similar place, it's quite, uh, quite amazing. Quite something, isn't it, that one? So yeah. I think that's the only time it's happened, isn't it? The, the, it's the only time there's been a pad aboard. Is that right? I, I think there was one other. And of course, more recently, uh, we had one uh, earlier this yeah. year, which uh, <laughs> actually at the, pa- at the uh, launch pad. But uh, it just goes to show it's, um, you know, <laughs> rockets are uh, still, uh, despite all the um, confidence we can now have through just the sheer experience, mm. the number of launches we have had is still quite a risky business. What did you think of that interview, Jamie? Well, well so I'll far. tell you what I thought of it. I thought it was Ica. What's Ica? Ica, Matt, is Hindi for the word ace. <laughs> really? Yeah. What's even more weird is that ace in Gujarati is Isa. E-S-A. No way. What way? <laughs> this is insane. Oh. I can feel another tattoo coming on. Well, I'll tell you what. Mm-hmm. That was ace. I can't wait. I can't wait to uh, read that book. Jamie, I've got some space fact. You better. I got a space fact for you. Hit me. NASA astronauts are going back to the moon. And when they get there, they may need to take quake-proof housing. What? Yeah, that's the conclusion of Clive Arneal, who's the Associate Professor of Civil Engineering and Geological Sciences at the University of Notre Dame. He's been analysing the Apollo mission seismometers on the moon. Oh, so he reckons there's been some rumbles up there. There's been more than some rumbles. There's a, there's four different types of moonquake, which is really interesting. Okay. So you've got your deep moonquake, which are probably caused by tides, like you know, okay. tidal uh, forces, that is. You've also got vibrations from the impact of meteorites. Yes. You've got thermal quakes, so that's when... Obviously, when you've got the sun shining on a bit of the planet all day long and then it goes cold and then heats up again. So that changing that changing temperature causes the crust to kind of expand and, 
and cause quakes. But the fourth kind is the most interesting. It really is. Shallow moon quakes only 20 or 30 kilometres below the surface. Wow. All tend to be mild. However, shallow moon quakes can register up to 5.5 on the Richter scale. Which is which is massive. That that's like that's big. Yeah, that is that is big. And apparently they last they last for about ten minutes. And, a, and and that's being described by Clive R. Neal as the whole as 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 the moon ringing like a bell. Well, that would swallow up any rover in its path. Yeah. So it's 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 not actually that <laughs> trivial a thing at all. So they don't know what causes them. They're actually not sure what causes these um, these quakes. And all of this quake information, 28 shallow moon quakes, were observed from 1972 to 1977 on the seismometers placed on the moon by Apollos 12, 14, 15 and 16. Oh, that is insane. Well, maybe our little Chinese rover can... Uh... Unlock some mysteries. I don't, I don't think it will. I don't think it's got a, a, that kind of seismometer on it. I think they need to sort of distribute lots and lots of different seismometers all over the surface of the planet, include, especially the lunar poles, um, because there's literally no information about that whatsoever. Um, mm. They think they might be caused by the rims of very large young craters uh, sort of slumping in on themselves you know eventually just going and collapsing hang on a minute young craters young craters isn't that your rap name (laughs) young craters (laughs) i'm bare good at rapping and my rap name is occasionally slump (laughs) it's it's what happens to people in their armchairs when they listen to this podcast (laughs) oh and let's not talk about large rims okay so we need to move on yes um talking about seismometers Mm -hmm. We can't stress enough how much we want to big up our patrons. Absolutely. So we've got a couple. Welcome to Joseph and Harvard, who've joined this week. Well done. Thank Welcome. You. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining. And of course... What an exclusive club they've joined. And we should give a shout out to the greatest human beings on Earth, our Skylon contributors. Just the kings. Bob, Darren... Justin, John, Julio, Catherine, Anthony, Kaylee, Matt, and Karel. Can't thank you guys enough. It's a massive, massive help. It means we can continue doing this. It means that we can get through Christmas without Matt crying. (laughs) And not only that, I want to give a special thanks to uh, John because he's been... Sending in some great uh, suggestions for new, oh, yeah. new What's bits he been on saying? the show. What do you think about this, Jamie? Jamie's visions of the future. Oh, yes. We should definitely have that as a slot on the show. Jamie's visions of the future. And then you just throw out one of your little tidbits of what life's going to be like in the year 2070. This is brilliant. I love this. Thanks, John. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you want me to start it now? I mean, I haven't had much thinking time. Well, uh, let's start next week. You can start next week. Okay, I'm going to start next week, John. Prepare to hear my vision <laughs> of the future. I love John because he sent me a picture of of me on the Mars surface. Oh, you're not going to go on about this again. Yeah, my, my... Why are you rubbing this in my face for the third <laughs> podcast in a row? Because you obviously did. You forgot to put your name on. The, I'm gutted. On... I'm gutted. I'm absolutely. Are you, gutted. Are you sure you didn't? Oh, I don't, I can't remember. And I think that's why I'm even more going, because I might be. 
<laughs> oh dear. Let's just pretend you have. Let's just pretend I have, everyone, okay? We got some good responses as well to our show about generationships. Oh, people seem to be loving it. Yeah, I really like this one from Rebecca. Here we go. She's been reading Kim Stanley Robinson, his novel Ooh. Aurora. And apparently that deals very much with the whole concept of generationships. It does. And so she highly recommends reading that book. And also 2312 is his book about worldships. Oh, well, thank you, Rebecca. I will absolutely uh, look into that and uh, get the book. I might actually download those onto Audible and do it on my huge drives to work these days. Rebecca, if you're listening, let me ask you a question. What do you think is the most likely of everything you've read? Tweet us, Instagram us, email us, let us know. We'll read it out next week. Keep it coming in. Jamie. Hello. I'm going to just big up everyone, all our listeners. Thank you so much for joining us on our voyage through space and time. We have the best listeners in the world. Indeed. And even in other worlds. Even in Jamie's bubble universe. That is going to be one of my visions of the future. But I, I'll just that's just a teaser. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's just a teaser. All right, I'm off to I'm off to Marrakesh. So I'll see you next week. I'm off to find out what a perfect totient number is. I'm going to look at um, some stars from the Sahara Desert. Oh, you jammy! What's great is you realise that we all live on one Earth. We all live in a beautiful world, as Chris Martin once sang. He sang it way better. Never mind. It's just beautiful, Matt. <laughs> Uh, All right, well, let us love you and leave you. Have a good weekend, everyone, and uh, be safe. Bye, Spodcats. Bye. Bye. Bye.